should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Hi, everyone. This is Sima Lieberman, the inclusionist on the Michelle Miao Show with everyday conversations on race for everyday people, where we bring people together from different backgrounds, have a comfortable conversation on race, make an uncomfortable conversation comfortable, and bring race to the people. Today, my guests are Brandon Thompson and Daisy Thompson, and I'm going to have each of them introduce themselves to you. So, Brandon, would you like to go first? And I'd like you just uh, describe yourself, say something about yourself, because people can't see you. Yeah, absolutely. I am a African American male. I am six foot one. I have brown eyes. No, we we don't have to get into profiles. Um, I'm also a uh, an advertising professional currently uh, as a fundraiser for nonprofit charities. Uh, I'm Daisy. Uh, I am five three. <laughs> I'm a uh, Latina, and I am a postdoctoral researcher. So I have a Ph.D. in developmental psychology, and I study adolescence. Good. Thank you. My first question to both of you, since you're African-American and you're a Latina, how does race play a role in your life? How, how does race not play a role in my <laughs> life is really probably a better question. Um, I mean, I think uh, we, were, we were both from Chicago, and I think that's just add some context to, you know, how race plays a role in our lives. Uh, Chicago, for those who might not be familiar, is um, obviously a large metropolitan area, third largest city in the states, but um, it also is one of the most segregated cities uh, in the states, and that's something that's been proven count from everyone, everyone uh, to you know, Martin Luther King to others, uh, that it's just such a, it's a really segregated city. So, right. yeah, race is definitely something that just plays a, a part, everything from housing to education to jobs to, you know, our own personal, you know, marriage and relationship. Yeah. And I, I think uh, this is not the case for everybody who is uh, in a intercultural, multi-ethnic um, relationship, but for us, that's how, you know, we were just friends, and um, that's how we kind of bonded at the beginning is um, by uh, engaging in race satire. <laughs> um, and just because it, there's uh, very few people that you can do that with. And so I think the fact that we had um, that in common, that awareness, and um, uh, that, that kind of was our bond originally, um, you know, in our everyday life, I'm sure we could all talk about um, 
you know, microaggressions that we've experienced, macroaggressions, um, and then some really great parts of, you know, being of our ethnic backgrounds um, and being together. So. so is it important to have conversations about race? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and why? Oh, my. Um, I think, uh, I think it's, it's, such a, it's such a huge part of um, being in the United States, uh, whether you're a minority or not, um, whatever group you're, you identify with. I think it's, it's important that we all um, really engage in these conversations. Um, we've, uh, we've had a lot of uh, conversations with friends that are both minorities in whatever uh, community that they're a minority in and people who are, who are not. And I think it, it's important that everybody engages in these conversations and that it's not just the minorities that have to, you know, scream from the mountaintops, um, as someone will put it, but that everyone gets involved because race, race uh, influences everyone, whether you're black, right. white, brown, and everything in between. Yeah, and yeah, I will, I think, oh, go ahead. I think um, it, it would be nice if we didn't have to because it can be uncomfortable. Um, for people, but I, but just given the history of our country, um, and not just history at this one point in time, but history from from when our country was founded um, as it stands today to now, uh, there's been you know all these policies that have been informed by race. So um, just because it affects everyone's daily life, uh, whether you benefit from it or you're ostracized because of it, um, it, it just impacts all, all of us where we're at, so it, it has to be talked about. Well, you know, oftentimes when people think in terms of multicultural relationships in the United States or even in terms of, of race, people think black and white. Now, the two of you are from two different cultures. What connections did you have, and what did, did you have any challenges from your family or from anybody outside? Um, I think that our uh, strongest connections, well, we met in college, so we have that in common. We are um, educated at this, um, in this um, college at an urban setting. Um, so, you know, we already had... Um, class in common, sort of. Um, then I think uh, one of our, our big commonalities is the way that we were raised. Our, our families were very involved in their respective churches, um, and it's just been a part of, like, belonging to and building our uh, respective local church has been a part of both of our families and, and something that we both continued to identify with. Um, so, the, you know, those things were, uh, you know, education, um, religion, and then, um, yeah, those were all things that we had in common. Um, I think at the onset, um, it's kind of funny because once people will, society will try to break up, uh, break up, even if you have a commonality, a common identity, you still have within groups, so whether it's shades, you know, you're all African-American or you're all Latino, but some people are darker, some people are lighter, and so there's value ascribed to the differences sometimes. And so um, 
for Christianity, there's a lot of different um, <laughs> denominations. And so uh, that was a little bit of resistance that I had to deal with at the beginning. My, my mom was hesitant, not because Brandon was African-American, but because uh, he was not from the same <laughs> denomination that was uh, very uh, prominent in, in our upbringing. Um, and, you know, and then uh, we moved past that, and so that was that. Um, is there anything else, Brandon? Yeah, how about for you, Brandon? I mean, it's interesting, though, because you look at different multiple identities, and in your situation, the challenge for your family was not because they were from two different cultures, but it was really around, hey, you're not going to the same church. Right, right. Uh, yeah, I think I think for, for me, um, my family is a little bit different. Um, a, I think uh, because the African-American uh, um, community, I think, is, is unique in the sense that because of its longstanding uh, relationship with kind of the white majority, and then also you add in the factor of clearly slavery that, that um, you know, played a huge factor in the kind of loss of the African culture from African-Americans. Um, I think it, it's a bit different, um, and I think uh, that's one of the things that kind of, so I think probably for me, my family, it, like, I, it was probably more of familial differences than it was, like, cultural, um, but, you know, there's certainly, like, cultural differences. Um, I, I come from a pretty big family, I come from, like, I have 11 siblings, so that, you know, that just creates, like, a, a culture within a culture. And so I think that's probably the big thing that, you know, we would have to, like, as a family, you know, that when we were first, when we first started dating, was just kind of like other, <laughs> just being used to, you know, having somebody else who's, who's different, um, somebody who, in Daisy's case, obviously is Mexican and um, doesn't look like the rest of us because we grew up in a pretty, you know, once again, Chicago, super segregated area where it's like pretty much only black people in the area. So I think um, it, my family is probably more willing to accept um, than most families, but I think it, it's, you know, it's still a family, and I think all units, um, you know, specifically family units, have trouble adapting um, other people into their group, and the, the more different they are from, from their family unit, the harder it is to adapt yeah, and both now both of you work with kids, am I right? You work with young people. I mean, kids of different ages. When do you when do you think it's the time to actually start talking to kids about race? <laughs> Never, no, <laughs> always. I mean, I think it's it's probably. Um, I think first it probably just depends on the individual and how how comfortable they are with talking about race. Um, and the reason why I say that is because if you have a bad teacher, then about a, a, any topic in, in the case of race in, in this conversation, but, you know, you think about math, science, anything like that, you have a bad teacher, um, it's going to really impact your, your affinity um, towards that subject. And I think that it really kind of depends on whoever is, you know, parents or whoever is teaching the, that that subject of race, like what is their comfort level? What's their um, understanding, their vocabulary? What is, what's their um, just overall knowledge um, and willing to learn, um, their own personal willingness to learn about that subject is what's gonna make them a good teacher. 
And um, I think as a result, that's when you can start having the conversation about, you know, when is it appropriate to talk to kids about it? Um, because I think, yeah, I think the first thing is probably the teachers and I'm and thinking. Yeah, that, that said, I think it doesn't let parents off the hook, you know, to say, I well, I'm just not comfortable with it. Then I, I think that you have to um, engage in the, in the discomfort um, and and be okay with learning so that you can be a better teacher to your children if if this is something that you value um, i don't I think there are developmentally appropriate ways to talk about race throughout so if you know it's it's difficult for a five year old to understand systemic oppression <laughs> you know something difficult that's difficult for some college students to understand um but uh, you know, it's it's probably appropriate when you're reading, um, you know, doing story time or watching TV with your children to point out that um, that there are no brown children on the TV. Like, where's the, like, you know, where's the Asian person in this, um, you know, Disney TV show, for example, or um, where in this... Um, in this book, like how come everybody's white or, you know, for, so for kids to start understand, and if there are, you know, minorities represented in the materials that they're encountering, are there different representations of those uh, minority characters, you know, or is the brown kid always poor, you know, yeah. is, so, you know what I'm saying? So I think there are different, there's uh, different times where you can talk about different things that are developmentally appropriate to your children, but I don't, children start understanding differences um, between group differences very early on before they have words. Um, and so it's, it's not, I can't say that it's ever too early to talk about it, just that there are probably developmentally appropriate ways to talk about it um, to your children. Okay, we're going to have to stop for a commercial break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about do you raise your kids to be colorblind kids? So this is Sima Lieberman, The Inclusionist, getting ready. We're having a commercial break, and I have um, Brandon Thompson and Daisy Thompson, and we'll be back in a few minutes. The Commonwealth Club of California is the nation's leading public forum engaged with the most important issues of the day. More than 450 times each year, we feature programs on politics, LGBT issues, literature, science, entertainment, and more. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Google Play. Watch our videos on YouTube and Facebook. And when you're in the Bay Area, join us in person for our daily programs. Learn more about the club at commonwealthclub.org. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. I think we're ready. We're really doing this. <laughs> yeah, I'm ready for our family. 
So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side as a unified team of the best fertility specialists guided by the highest ethical standards Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on on Facebook. Like us at Facebook.com forward slash Progressive Voices. On the Progressive Voices Facebook page, we update the stories that our hosts like Tom Hartman, Stephanie Miller, Bill Press, and Leslie Marshall will be talking about during their shows. And we share great news, commentaries, opinion pieces, and videos from all over the progressive world. Always progressive, always on. Be part of the progressive conversation. Like us at Facebook.com forward slash Progressive Voices. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Hi, everyone. This is Sima, the inclusionist, back from commercial break. And today I'm talking to Brandon Thompson and Daisy Thompson. This is Everyday Conversations on Race for Everyday People. And we were ta- early before the break, we were talking about when is the best time to educate kids about race. And I want to ask the two of you your opinion about this. I keep on running into parents. Now, mostly white, but not always white, who tell me, it's always the story always goes like this. Well, my son, I went to school with my son, and he always talked about their friend Linda. So I said, who's Linda? And Linda is a black girl, but instead of saying this is a little black girl, my son or my daughter or whoever says, oh, that's Linda with the red coat. I was so proud of my son. Now, my son didn't mention the color of the little girl's skin. Now, in my opinion, I think I know what their intentions are. They maybe have good intentions, but I don't think it's anything to be so proud of. That you, so what do you think? I mean, first I would ask, um, how many black people do you know named Linda? That, that would be my first question. Well, I know a lot of black people named Linda. <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, no, I, I think it's, no, it, it's a really good point, uh, all jokes aside. I think it's a, it's a really good point. I mean, I, I think, you know, this idea of colorblindness has been thrown around uh, pretty frequently, and I think it's the, the trouble with that, um, that I find um, is that a lot of times it just kind of skips over a lot of steps um, in the acceptance and the kind of, you know, like the higher level of uh, just kind of acceptance and belonging. I think, you know, we get to a certain, like just in this gradual, just people as they relate to each other. I think the ultimate form of relationship is a, is a relationship of love. And I think one of the things that we kind of skip in some of the, you know, like in the process of, of like wanting to do this colorblind theory is that we 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 skip over people's like people's feelings we skip over people's experiences we skip over their um their hurts their their families their past we skip over their context and there's no relationship that i know that you know a relationship of love where you would allow someone to skip over those steps skip over where someone is from skip over where someone um, you know, their family, their content, like skip over those things. And I think that that's a really important part to get to, uh, you know, these really strong, uh, like a closer 
our relationship between people um, because I don't think that it should just stop at, you know, tolerance. I think it will, it should, it needs to go much deeper because, you know, I've heard someone say like, you know, when have you ever invite, when do you ever invite somebody over for dinner? And then afterwards you say, well, they were tolerable and that'd be a good thing. So I think there, there's something more, more than just tolerance um, and something more than just uh, and I think colorblind is just uh, is just an outcome of quote unquote tolerance that um, I think is is pretty surface level and that I think we can do better as society. Right. Um, I the other thing that this ignores is that um, humans are are made to discriminate their surroundings. It's just part of how we're wired. So babies can tell the difference between somebody who is of their group and someone who is not of their group. So um, if they have, uh, you know, let's say they're, they have black parents and then they see somebody who is not black, uh, they can tell that that person is different. Um, it, you know, there's all this research on it. There's ex- experiments that are done. Babies don't have words, but, you know, based on these different methods that these infant researchers um, employ, uh, you know that, children before they can even speak, before they're even one, before they can walk, um, they can tell who is of their who is of their group and who is of another group. Um, they can tell uh, what language is their native language and what language is not. They can, you know, before they're even one, I think they can tell who has an accent in their <laughs> native language and who doesn't. Um, a little bit later, they know oh, there's another language, there's two languages here, let's say you have a bilingual family, and they know who to ascribe what language to what person. So my grandmother speaks um, English and my mother speaks French, let's say if you're in Europe or something. Um, so it's not, a, it's not a bad thing that we can tell who's different. It just happens. Now, what happens when you embrace colorblindness is that you teach children that it's that this distinction between people these differences that they see uh, are they have some kind of value and uh, it's bad to talk about these differences Uh, and so instead of acknowledging yeah that person is different but different doesn't mean bad different doesn't mean inferior um, or superior, uh, uh, you you now you can talk about it. It's like if a if a if a baby says a swear word or something, and you react very strongly to it, then the baby knows. Um, well, I guess if they have some words, they're not necessarily babies, but they know um, there's something wrong here. Um, so it, what happens when you're when you embrace colorblindness is that you teach children this is not an okay topic to talk about um and kids know they're very perceptive of you know the norms that their parents are passing on to them it doesn't have to be explicitly stated they pick up on it uh and so again to go back to brandon's point it skips over this relationship part it it doesn't help build the relationship with other people because you ignore um the all of the the value that is in the differences that we have, and that value doesn't mean 
inferior or superior, but you can't even talk about that because you're not, your kids know that it's not okay to talk about these things. Yeah, and I think that sometimes, I know in, my, in the workshops that I do, I do a lot of facilitation, and we talk about race and other issues, and oftentimes people will tell me that they rather, they, they like that they think that their kid is colorblind, which of course, as we know, nobody is, because it's too uncomfortable to talk about differences, and they don't know how to talk about difference. My, my late partner was African-American, and... Uh, she was into broadcast communications, and she was really into TV and movies and would watch the same scene over and over and over again. And she taught our son how to watch TV and how to watch movies, and she taught him about differences in culture and about race and racism. So if we want to be anti-racist and we don't talk to our kids about race, how will our kids grow up to be anti-racist? Yeah, yeah right. it's, a, it's a great point. Um, I mean, and I think that, yeah, like, it's, it's definitely something that we have to be really, like, proactive about. Um, and I, I like that. I like that term, like, anti, anti-racist. Um, but I think it, it's, it's anti-racism um, in, the, in the ideology, but not in the people. And I think that's the that's the careful thing because I think once it's once a person is is like equated with an ideology, then the person gets demonized. And I think what a lot of racism kind of boils down to is is ignorance, people not knowing, people not feeling confident, and then as a result, them you know either doubling down or just kind of knowing what's you know like going with whatever um, with whatever the uh, whatever ideology is just around them. And so I think the I think when we talk about, you know, how do we, you know, eliminate racism, I think we have to kind of treat racism as its own as a virus itself and not blame the host so much. Um, because I do think that once the host gets blamed then it, it then that's when racism tends to spread that much more. And um, the host is the only thing that can really, you know, spread that. And so, like, the virus itself is the thing that we need to kind of figure out how to cure. And, um, and really applying it to the people is really what's going what's gonna to take us. It's going to make it that much more of a, a, a volatile and hostile, um, you know, elimination. So oftentimes people will say things like uh, don't, Call it's it's they'll say adults will say well it's very uncomfortable to talk about race. I don't know how to talk about race. Don't mention people's race. Whether you, people believe that the concept of race is a social construct or not, the issue really is around different cultures and different 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 skin color. Is it rude to mention somebody's skin color? <laughs> Um, I think that there are, <laughs> there's times where you don't need to, but I don't think that it's inappropriate to, unless you're, I think that if you think that it's inappropriate to mention someone's color, it's probably because you're ascribing value to their color. So it's like, oh, I can't say that they're Asian because it's like an insult. Yeah, it's know, like, like they, or they don't know that they're there. Asian. You go, oh. Maybe they don't know they are. Okay, so I'll pretend that they're not. Right. So I, I think, 
yeah, I, I think it's, uh, I don't, I don't think that it's inappropriate, but sometimes you don't, you know, it's not relevant to the story, Yeah. you know, so you don't need to, um, you know, you were aggressed by someone and this person was of X ethnicity. If it's not pertinent to the story, you may not need to say it, but to describe someone as, oh, I can't remember like what her name is. She wears the glasses. Uh, she's really pretty. And, um, and she's black. And then I've, I've heard people react like, oh, like you're racist because you call her. No, she is black. Um, it's okay. You know, it's okay. Yeah. It, it shows that you're uncomfortable with talking about race. You don't know how to, how to talk about it. Um, that, that kind of shows your level of comfort with talking about race. And if you, and if you are uncomfortable, that's okay. Just try to do something about it. You know, it may not be your fault, let's say, that you were raised in a context where you didn't have to talk about race. Um, that's okay. Now you're aware that these are issues in our country that are pl- disproportionately plaguing certain members of our society. Then do the work to get better, you know, at, at talking about race. Do the work to understand what other people are are going through. And, all, and we're going to break for We're going to do another commercial break in a second. I also want to say that in my opinion that if you're a parent and you want your kids to grow up thinking that equity is important, then it's important that you also are a role model. They have to see you living a certain way. If they're going to be that way. So we have to take it. It's time for another commercial break. This is Sima Lieberman, The Inclusionist, with Brandon Thompson and Daisy Thompson. And when we come back, we're going to talk about Roy Moore and Doug Jones. I'm Heclina. I've been doing drag here in San Francisco for almost 20 years, and uh, over the past couple of months, I just opened up my club, Oasis. It's been going really well. People really seem to appreciate the space. It's something people say San Francisco really needs right now, because the city has been changing a lot. I always had this attitude of, of opening a space that was kind of like for everybody, and that's just kind of the attitude and the, the, uh, the ethics of Oasis, is it's kind of a space for everybody. How does it feel to be a business owner? I don't know, you know, it's funny because I still need to, I still have to kind of pinch myself to believe it's actually true, you know what I mean? Like I walk in there and, and I go up to the bar and I go, oh, can I please have a glass of water? You know, it's kind of like, I forget that it's my place. Running gay clubs, it's changed a lot. Um, I think that gay people now, they're everywhere. They don't feel like they have to maybe be in a gay bar all the time, so you have to be much more creative about how you are enticing people to come out to your club. I, I guess I'm successful because I'll just say it, I work really hard at what I do. I also like to provide a really quality experience for people. So yes, you know, people will pay to see my shows and pay to come to my club, but I always like, like to give them something that's worth it. The experience that they'll, they'll leave my shows going, okay, that was worth it, you know what I mean? This has always been my attitude. Um, just to entertain people, and so it seems like that works, you know. I would say to young kids, you know, just kind of form your own identity 
and, uh, and you know, don't let others dictate how you should behave or think. Uh, you can always go to uh, sfoasis.com to find out about all the entertainment and nightlife that we have going on at Oasis. If you want to see drag, we've got that for you. If you want to see some queer hip-hop parties or queer dance parties, we have that for Spotlight you. Spotlight on success and achievement. Brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Hi, this is Sima Lieberman, the inclusionist, back from commercial break with everyday conversations for everyday people on the Michelle Meow Show. And today I'm talking to Brandon Thompson and Daisy Thompson. And we were just talking about when is the right time to educate your children about race. And I'm moving the topic over to talk about the election last night in Alabama. Doug Jones beat Roy Moore. So in your opinion, Brandon and Daisy, was race or racism a factor in this election? Yeah, I mean... It's interesting. I think um, I think power was definitely one, which is always an important part of the racism equation. Um, I, I I mean I think one of the things that the polls kind of showed was that African Americans came out in in really good numbers to really uh, encourage the the win of of Doug Jones, and so um, I think it definitely played a poll, like just from a, a practical side, from the just from a, a polling perspective, but. Um, yeah, I think power was probably more at play, um, and I think just uh, overall the, the the states and the country's um, displeasure with uh, with some of the things that the the Republican Senate and um, specifically with uh, I think with Roy Moore um, and just his obviously the scandal with the with the underage with the underage uh, kids, I think it's, I think that's the, the thing that probably played a bigger role um, is really just like the power dynamics and the misuse of power. Um, and I think that's what we're probably seeing in the, in the U.S. is uh, probably, it's just this, this flood of the misuse of power. Um, you know, obviously everything from the election of our, our current president to, um, to this Roy Moore thing, or to, um, I mean, with the, the outpouring of people coming forward about, you know, uh, this foul play and, and sexual harassment in the, uh, in the music and entertainment industry. And so I think that's the, I think that's probably what stands out to me about, about that win more is, is that people are, are, are just upset. I think just kind of done with this idea that, um, yeah, power should be, you know, used to whatever end that you want it to be used. And, um, I'm glad that you know the the folks at Alabama decided that um, they they were they were done with that. What do you think, Daisy? Um, I think that uh, some of the things that I've seen so far have been, you know, um, black voters came out, and that's kind of what saved the election. And I think uh, that's it's true, but it's an incomplete truth. I think that uh, you know white people also played a big role in um, the defeat of Roy Moore. And I think that that shouldn't be, in the future, I don't want it to, to move to, well, you know, minorities in your respective states 
uh, where you may be a numerical majority in your area, it's your fault that that this uh, you know this oppressive person won, you know, because you didn't come out and vote because you know Roy Moore lost, but he still got forty eight percent of the vote. It's not like he lost ninety ten, which you know rarely happens in politics, but it's not like he lost. He he definitely lost, and in politics that percentage is a is a means that you lost but in statistics like in the the research that i do uh, that's basically a 50 50 chance and that wouldn't get published anywhere um so you still what you see is uh basically a split still um in the state and you know fortunately in in this case you know the person that wasn't accused of sexual harassment and and pedophilia uh, is a person who won uh, but you still had a substantial portion of the state su- supporting him. Um, and in, and in the future in other states, I, I, I think that it is very important to mobilize, uh, disenfranchised voters, uh, or citizens to go out and vote. Um, that's not the only part of uh, of the people who are voting, and it's not the only uh, votes that you have to sway or opinions that you have to influence. Well, also, here's a person, though, that said, I mean, cause the gender thing, I thought, okay, maybe, I thought maybe the gender thing might make him lose, but then I realized that there's a lot of people that just don't care. You know, they, they do not care. So it doesn't matter how many people somebody harassed, it doesn't matter. They don't care. But then he said, he said when they said, well, when, the, when was the United States at his best? And he said pre-Civil War was when we were the greatest, he said, even though there was slavery. Mm-hmm. So that says to me that this guy is definitely coming from some type of white supremacist mentality. Right. Right. I mean, which I mean, and he's just a representative of his, of a lot of unfortunately his constituents that that believe that. I mean, our yeah. president, our current president, ran on that plat, ran on a platform very similar. He didn't out out, like outwardly say what, um, what Mr. Moore said, but it's still, you know, I, I think that that's that's the feeling of uh, Americans, um, and I think. Once again, to Daisy's point, that's exactly what we saw in this election: is that there's a, a huge divide, and yeah, race plays a, plays a role. But uh, it's interesting to see kind of like so many different yeah. different disenfranchised like communities that are being you know put on the wrong side of these conversations, and that it's still coming out fifty fifty, and that that seems that seems alarming um, in a lot of ways. Yeah, and he also said that. After the 10th Amendment, he wanted to get rid of the other amendments. So what are the other amendments? African-American people being citizens, African-American people having the right to vote. And this guy wants to get rid of them. So it makes me think about the Dred Scott decision. And I'm wondering, I always say we have to revisit it because it seems like it's that same kind of mentality, although now people have a right to vote. Um, Dred Scott was, in 1857 was a slave who had lived in a free state where slavery was prohibited. And he felt that he was entitled to his freedom since slavery was prohibited. 
the person who had, because the owner, his owner had taken him to this free state. However, the owner disputed it and said, no, you're my property. They went to court, and here's what the court said, was that African Americans were not and could never be citizens of the United States, and that black people had no rights that white people were bound to respect. So when I hear that, and I see what's going on, I hear people like Roy Moore making these statements and getting so many votes. I see like the black caucus in, in Congress being totally dissed. It makes me wonder, do black people or people of color have any rights that some white people are bound to respect? So what do you think? Um, I'll say that um, I think that one of the things to take from this um, from this case, uh, the Dred Scott case, is that I, I've heard many people say uh, this is probably the worst decision that the Supreme Court has ever made. Um, it's embarrassing. It was wrong. Um, it's up there, you know, in one of the worst things that the court has ruled on. Um, that said, I think that it, it calls into question our current policies, um, our morality, and, and it, it just it begs the question, you know, just because it's law doesn't mean that it's correct, you know. Um, so even if you do, and I think that creating policies and laws that, that advocate for equality in our citizens um, and, and residents, um, you know, and just people who are here living in our country contributing to our society, um, just because they're laws, and that's just, that's the, that's the bare minimum of standards for how we should be treating each other. Um, and so the fact that a, a law is in place or is not in place, it, a, a law will impact people's daily lives, um, but it, it doesn't change the way that we treat each other. It's very difficult to, to police the way that we interact with each other. Um, and so I, you know, I would advocate for more, for, you know, for more policies that, that uh, you know, that would change our society for a better way, but, but also, you know, understand that the battle is not over there, is not over once you accomplish a certain a policy, because if you don't deal with people's hearts, if you don't deal with people's attitudes, um, uh, and biases, then that just carries on to the next generation. And so, sure, you had some improvement, but the next generation can just create a, you know, a similarly oppressive law. I, I tried to look up, you know, voter rights laws and, and to try to understand when somebody like myself could vote. And it turns out that there were still language requirements in the 70s uh, to try to exclude Puerto Rican voters. So we took over their, their um, c 
country as a, and made it a territory and okay so now you're part of us so i suppose you can vote you will give you citizenship if you live on the mainland but uh we're gonna you know limit that so that you can't really vote because you have to know how to read this uh in english for example um so it's it's uh just because it's a law doesn't mean that it 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 improves society potentially, but that's it doesn't mean that we're done there. You you have to keep advocating um, so that people you know, can learn to live with each other and value okay. each other, not just tolerate each other. Okay, thank you for that. We're going to break for another commercial, and when we come back, my question is this: around the Dred Scott decision, is that at that time they decided that. Black people had no rights that white people had to respect legally. So when we come back, I want to ask this question about not only black people, but people of color. Are there any indications based on what's going on today in the United States that there are a lot of rights for people of color that are not being respected? So we're going to talk about that when we come back from commercial break. Simma Lieberman, The Inclusionist. Talk to you in a few minutes. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boyes came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year, with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face -face with today's thought leaders. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side as a unified team of the best fertility specialists guided by the highest ethical standards Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Like us on Facebook and share us with your friends. Find out more at facebook.com slash progressive voices. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show.
everyone. This is Sima Lieberman, the inclusionist, back from break. And I'm talking with Brandon Thompson and Daisy Thompson. And the question I posed before was around the Dred Scott decision, where they said that a white man, that a black, a black person has no rights that white people are bound to respect. So I want to know, does that decision still resonate today? Forgetting the laws, are we seeing that? Are we seeing disrespect for the rights of people of color, particularly when I, when I think about DACA or I think about Roy Moore saying, hey, the country was great. Yeah, there was slavery. So what? And he's still getting all those votes. People aren't. So what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think it is really clear that, I mean, just with our country, because I think this is kind of a layered question. I think just with our country in general, I think there's definitely, you know, the constant, you know, oppression and marginalization of the African-American community. And I was actually uh, just recently um, looking at a, uh, a video of James Baldwin, and he was uh, he was exploring the idea of why does America need, like, the nigga, is what the, the title of that, that speech was. And, and I think um, he kind of posed that question, and it wasn't a question that he answered, but um, it's one that's been kind of rolling around in my mind. And I think that's why we see, like, we see these, you know, the marginalization of the African-American uh, community from a lot of different angles because America does, in fact, need, like, the nigga. And I think that, well, that's, there's a difference between when I say that, and I think, and he made this distinction as well, that nigga and, and black person are two different terms. And I think we have to separate those um, for, this com- for, for us to go forward in this conversation. So if we separate those two, then I think that we can talk about, like, okay, what is it about uh, a poor African-American that does, not have, um, that does not have rights, that does not have education, that does not have resources or the possibility to grow? Why is that necessary for the United States? What, what about why has this continued on for so long? And I think part of it is because um, for the U.S. to continue um, pitching the American dream, it needs the people who have not made it. You need that the American dream only exists in in comparison to somebody who's nearby who doesn't have it, who has not achieved it. And I think um, you know, the, and that dates all the way back to the reason why race was created in the first place is to create division amongst an, an America that had a bunch of poor white people and a bunch of poor black people who were slaves and indentured servants. And you know, like you create this division of race to really keep the the very small, even smaller minority of of rich, like of extremely wealthy white people, white men specifically, in power. And I think that that's the thing that we kind of have to understand about this conversation of race is that race is classism. Race is um, like it is based off gender. It is like race is, is a lot of different things. It's not simply just the color of the skin and the value that's ascribed to it. It is, it is built off of the supremacy of a white male, um, European male, um, like dominance. And I think that that's the conversation that, like, in, in understanding that, I think we now under, I think it gives us a, a little bit of context to understand that, 
Yeah, the, the, absolutely. Like at every turn, like just throughout the course of history from, you know, the Dred Scott decision all the way, you know, like even to today where we're, you know, finally looking at the prosecution, the first prosecution of an officer that has been found guilty and sentenced for the killing of an unarmed African American. And so I think it's it's been it's it's a part of the culture unfortunately for many years and I think that the reason why is because it allows people to think just as much as you need the people that are the aspiration that are at the top the you know the the 1% just as much as you need them you need the people at the bottom to to make you think that you've made it much farther than you have. I mean, overall, I'm not saying that I – I always have to clarify this. I'm not saying every white person doesn't respect the rights of people of oh, color. And I'm not saying <laughs> all people of color walk around feeling oppressed all day and that all people of color don't feel that they have any rights. I am saying, though, that when I see people – I'm just using Roy Moore as an example – or other things, when you see somebody, an unarmed man, black man being killed – and everybody, the jury says, yeah, I'd be afraid, too, if it ever goes to trial. Then it does make me question people's rights overall being respected. I, I think that it's important to understand the... Daisy, we can't hear you. I think that it's important to understand the, the history for, um, for different groups uh, in the in this country, and for African Americans at you know the early part of the century, even once you know you ended slavery, people were still being you know attacked, killed um, without without due process um, by people in power, by sheriffs who would go and terrorize communities. You had no rights. To say anything, and, and I think that's not the experience for most white people. So when they hear that this continues to happen, um, you know, this the Latino community is afraid of Arizona because of yeah. the infamy that Joe Arpaio spread, not just in Arizona, but nobody wanted to cross through Arizona if they were going from one state to the next because. Um, you you know you could be targeted, and it didn't matter if you were an American citizen or not. If you looked the part, if you were brown enough, if you were in an area uh, driving a certain vehicle, you would be pulled over, and you your rights would be questioned, and you would be stripped of your rights as an American citizen just because of what you look like. And so, you know, it, just because you have some power right now doesn't mean that that's always going to be the case. You know. Japanese people were placed in internment camps during the World War. So, you know, it's, it's, it happens to many, many groups. Um, it, you know, it just depends on kind of who serves the narrative at, you know, at the time of, of the next news cycle. Could be a Muslim person, um, you know. Yeah, I mean, and... And I think about that, like I think about the DACA kids, kids who were promised that they would be able to stay in the United States, that there was a path to citizenship. 
Everybody believed that. So people come, so, so, so people register or they, they, they're very open about who they are. And then we start having these anti-immigration policies and people who've been here for all these years all of a sudden no longer have any rights. All of a sudden they're being deported. So isn't that, can, can, do you see, because uh, I see a comparison to the Dred Scott decision. He goes to a free, free state, but he has no rights of a free person. He's still a slave. Yeah, I mean, what do you absolutely. Think? Uh, yeah, I think it's, it, the United States is notorious for making laws that just benefit its majority white constituents. I mean, that's just, that, I think that, that we've just seen that throughout the course of history. You just, you know, pick any date in the course of the, of the history of the United States and, and the law will change to work for, um, yeah, and, and that goes for today with the DACA that goes, you know, I think mm -hmm. we've just seen it throughout. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's unfortunate that, that the lines, like in the case of, you know, Dred, Dred Scott, where the lines literally were, were drawn and to say, like, this is, you know, this is what's right. This yeah. is, you know, like, here's, like, you know, this happens and, you know, everything was supposed to work out that way. However, you know, just like the promise of DACA, like, you know, everything was supposed to work out that way. It was supposed to be, you know, but, you know, the, the interest of the country then changed and therefore it was more beneficial, whether it's Dred Scott or DACA, um, to, to keep these people oppressed. And so my question is, why is it necessary to keep these people oppressed? Well, that's, that's a good question, and that we'll have to move that to another show. Um, and hopefully you two will come back on because I, I see where it's coming to, coming to the end of our show. It, it goes so fast. This time goes so fast. I want to thank both of you for, for being on today. And um, I'd like to tell everybody, you could hit me up at Sima at SimaLieberman.com or at The Inclusionist on Twitter. Come to my website, SimaLieberman.com. Thanks so much for tuning in today. For more on us and other programs or podcasts you might have missed, you can head to michellemeow.com. Many nonprofits rely on events to raise money, create space for community gathering, and offer opportunities to network. But how many hours in a day do community leaders have when they're busy changing the world? Imagine your next event, gala, festival, or celebration professionally executed with creative ideas and ideals to match your community service. IDK is the community's trusted event production company. Visit idkevents.com for all your event production needs. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on on Facebook. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. On the Progressive Voices Facebook page, we update the stories that our hosts like Tom Hartman, Stephanie Miller, Bill Press, and Leslie Marshall will be talking about during their shows. And we share great news, commentaries, opinion pieces, and videos from all over the progressive world. Always progressive, always on. Be part of the progressive conversation. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices.